Alright, Frederick, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, hello? Okay. Yes, I'm ready. Alright, this is, um... Alright, this is Manuel with an episode of the Logistic, and I have here, uh, Frederick Bishop. And, um... Uh, this is a new, a new podcast, and uh, we'll go ahead and introduce yourself, Frederick. Well, good evening, Emmanuel, and good evening, everybody. My name is Frederick Bishop. I just turned 28 years old. I live on the south side of Atlanta, Georgia, and I really want to use my voice to be an advocate and a support system for people on this autism spectrum, particularly those who are in the black community and in the LGBT community. All right. That's awesome. So just to, uh, just to clarify you, uh, you, you define yourself under three types. Can you, um, can you list those types for everybody? Well, mm -hmm. I'm black. I'm also mm -hmm. gay or same gender loving. And I'm on the autism spectrum. So I am neurodiverse. And I was first diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome back All right. in 1997. So that would make you, that would make you like, uh, you were, you were diagnosed young, basically. You're, Yes, I was diagnosed particularly very young. So right now, I'm really just beginning to connect the dots of how the autism has affected and is okay. affecting my life. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on here. I know we were we kind of did this spur of the moment last minute, but uh, uh, I, I wanted to get your... You know, I wanted to get your voice and your insight, and see about putting and see about putting our conversation on our show, on my show. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I guess we could call it our show, but my show. Yes, right. for okay. the night. <laughs> uh, right. So you know, just real, uh, real short for everybody. Can you um, tell us a little bit about your uh, your history? you know, dealing with being black and being gay and on the autism spectrum? Well, starting from the beginning, of course, before the age of four, everything in my life seemed fine. My mother and my grandparents thought I was a little genius, basically. And course they had the highest hopes for me but when I was four years old when I was in preschool at Oak Knoll Elementary my teacher had gathered the students up for story time and of course if you remember those days the kids would get into a circle and the teacher would be in the middle and she would go ahead and read the story but while 
the other kids were in the circle during story time mm-hmm. listening to the story. I was crawling under right. desks. And you're in, uh, and, and, uh, I don't know what, yeah. You know, your, your mother and your, your mother and your grandmother noticed that you were operating in that manner and, you know, decided we got to go get Frederick tested, right? They didn't, oh, they didn't exactly know, know they knew it was what the odd. issue they knew was. It, they knew it stuck out as odd behavior. Yes, they knew that it was strange and they had to gotcha. seek professional help from me. And of course, uh, you know, you were, let's see, you said you were four. What year was that? This was right. in you know, 1997. Uh, you know, in the 90s, that was a, that's a big, you know, that's, you know, that's a big deal to be diagnosed in that time frame because, you know, uh, 90s usually, you know, most of the time you didn't get, you didn't really see a lot of, a lot of people get diagnosed with autism, especially, you know, if you were black. Um, if you were not, if you were black, if you were not white or male or doing something in, in a particularly aggressive manner. So, um, exactly. And as we discussed earlier, a lot of black children, well, black and brown children, they slip through the cracks because either they're misdiagnosed or they're not diagnosed at all. It's just, oh, they're peculiar or they're different, but there's not really an answer for why that particular child is different or peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I grew up like that. I was an odd child. I was a peculiar child. You know, um, they said I had gone to the, they said I had gone to the, uh, the, uh, the psychiatrist or the therapist and they put me on some pills and they said they made the the pills made me seem weird and they didn't do anything else about it because apparently the therapist said I would grow out of it and I was just like nope didn't grow out of it so you know I got diagnosed late I'm part of a big group a big huge group of like being diagnosed at like a late age so you know it's uh it's definitely, it's definitely a, it's definitely a club I'm happy to be a part of because I met so many awesome people, but at the same time I'm just there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff I had trouble with, and of course I wasn't able to finish school because of it. Um, there was a lot of guilt and self hate that I had to personally, you know, resolve within myself before I could find some semblance of a piece in regards to my diagnosis. So, um, I know we've gone, I know we kind of, I know we kind of went over it a little bit, but, um, could you give me like a shortened, can you give me like a short version of like literally how like most of your, uh, most of like your childhood went, like, you know, middle school, high school, stuff like that. Well, as far as my childhood in particular being 
in public schools. I was in the Fulton County school system. I was in special education. Basically, pretty much the whole 12 years, I was in public schools. And elementary school, and I have to start there because I never told you this, but I had to go five different yeah. elementary schools I, before I, I found that. my place. I did not know that you went. Yes, okay. five different ones. And for my mother, especially, it was rough because she had to be the one fighting for me and advocating for me. Of course, my grandmother mm-hmm. was with her, but my mother basically was my main fighter and my main advocate, but I finally ended up going to an elementary school that was a fit for me, and that was from the third to the fifth grade. But starting in middle school, that's when times got really rough, especially socially, because I don't know what well, it is about this. Just to bring out the worst school, in people, I've noticed. Such Yes, that, yeah, that is the worst time I ever went through. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the hormones starting right. to kick in or I have no clue, but it was just a difficult experience. And like I said, socially, it was extremely rough. I was bullied. Well, right. it started in third grade, but by the time I got to middle school, it was on a regular basis. It was the right. worst time for me. Wow, man. I got bullied. Uh, you know, I got bullied. I think I started getting bullied. I think it was in like second, third grade. And the thing about getting the thing about getting bullied really is you know, I used to get bullied on my way home because I used to walk home. And the weird thing about getting, the weird thing about getting bullied is that, you know, your parents, my parents, of course, got involved when I got bullied at home, but they really, really caught, you know, the bullying that happened. They barely really caught the bullying that happened, you know, uh, in school, right? Like, you know, you got bullied in the bathroom, you got bullied in the hallway, you know, you know, uh, you know, you got adults trying to be like the little bully advocates or whatever. And I'm just like, you know, sometimes school's a little bit like prison. You can't, you can't catch what they're, you can't catch what you're doing all the time, you know? So... I think parents forget that. Parents forget that, like, you know, sometimes school is like prison. You can't catch what a kid's going to do all the time. And then with the advent of the internet and everything, you know, a kid can, you know, a kid can mess with another kid, you know, by their cell phone now. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a, it's a much, it's a much, much harsher world. It's a much, much tougher world. So, you know, right. So, exactly, you know, and and uh, 
from what you were speaking about before, you said high school was you kind of you kind of had a rough for like a, an extra two years, but then the last two were pretty much okay, right? I mean, to some. Oh yes, by the time I got to the last two years in high school. I think by then, people were just ready to graduate. They're ready to finish the process and become adults. And I think by then, we were just at a mm -hmm. different place. Okay. Yeah. Uh and I have to go back to middle school. And in addition, it, it's so funny how mm -hmm. it happened this way. Um, my grandmother, who I would consider my best friend, of course, I love my mother dearly, but my grandmother was basically my road mm -hmm. dog, if you will. And she passed away, I would say, less than a month before I finished fifth grade and was promoted to middle school. Mm -hmm. And then going into middle school without her, the bullying started. And I think looking back on it, that made it even harder okay. for me. All right. But yeah, going into high school and then finishing high school, I just think people were, maybe they just got tired of bullying me. I think so. Tired of I, I had the same thing. Like I got bullied like every... <laughs> I got bullied on the bus like almost on a regular basis in middle school. I mean, it just it just turned into like this whole Mad Max Fury Road type of thing where you were just where it was just like a literal fight getting home like every day. And I took like I took the you know, I took like the I you know, I was doing like the end to end bus system. So like for like literally like 30 to 45 minutes, you know, it was just like it was just like a fight and it was always the same group of bullies getting, you know, getting upset and everything. And then high school happened and everybody just seemed to kind of like, I don't know, like mellow out or just, I guess they were worried about other stuff or, or I guess maybe it was because I like I shot up in height or something like that. But um, I still had trouble, but it, mine was more on like an academic level and less. Well, I was having trouble socially and academically, but socially for different reasons. But academically, I was doing a lot, doing a lot better. So I understand. I know for me, I had more problems socially than academically. I think with the social issues, it made the academic waters a little choppy, but I ended up resolving that. But I remember many days where I would come home crying. And, of course, my mother instinctively knew that something happened at school. And she would ask me what happened. And she would have to call the school the next day. Or she would have to come up to the school. And it was a real mm -hmm. struggle. But all that time... I never connected my diagnosis with the reason why I stood out or was different and why people tend to either bully me 
or not want to be friends with gotcha. me. But I'm not saying that everybody I came in contact with bullied me, but there were people that I may have been cordial with or may have had a little bit better time with, but overall, no one really wanted to befriend me or hang out with me, and I never truly understood why at that time. I never connected the dots, Mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. Me too. I, well, but, I didn't know anything about it at all, yeah. and I get that too. I was just like, "Why does it?" I thought I, I, I thought I was, I thought I was a pretty friendly person. I thought I was a pretty friendly guy, but then I got the the yearbook at like the end of the year, and like literally like half of them said, "I didn't know you very well, but I'm sure you're like an awesome person." And um, and that disconnect that just wasn't it wasn't reaching. Uh, it wasn't reaching me. So um. So I understand. So moving forward, so you graduated high school, basically. Um, yeah, but 2010. Okay. So basically, give me like a shortened, give me like a, 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 a shortened version of like your, your path post high school, because um, it, it, the whole picture of it sounds the whole picture of it sounds fascinating. When, uh, when well, with my senior year in high school, I really didn't have a plan for myself. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do after high school because when you spend all of these years fighting to get from one grade level to the next and you finally make it to the end of the journey... And you look out at the horizon and you say to yourself or ask yourself, what's next? What are you going to do? So I I was definitely lost. I was lost. And I thought about going to mortuary school after I graduated from high school. But my teachers were basically saying that that wasn't a good career choice or you know, you should do it for a side hobby if you actually want to pursue it. And I allowed them to sway me. But to be honest, before mortuary school came in my head, I didn't really want to go to college. Not because I didn't think I was intelligent enough, but because of the social aspects of it. I knew with college there were different organizations, and I thought of I was thinking homecoming and different social groups, and that frightened me, Mm -hmm. especially with what I went through Mm -hmm. in public school. Right. Um, I did not go through that. Right, of course. I mean, you know, uh, you'd be like a new, you'd be like a new individual in a bigger place. Um. You wouldn't really know anybody. Uh, I actually like, well, socially I was okay with college. And that was probably because I had like four or five friends and we all liked the same things. And, uh, you know, we're still, you know, we're still friends today. Right. Um, and, I'll, you know, I'm always grateful for that. But I always regret the fact that I didn't, personally, I didn't finish. 
I didn't finish college, and that was partly because, like, I cared a lot about what other people thought of my future, and um, I I let that uh, I let that influence a, a majority of my life. So I, I do regret that, but. Um, at least you were able to finish. You you uh you did end up you did end up graduating from college, correct? Yes, I did. And like I said, I was thinking about mortuary school, but I was swayed from doing that and I allowed myself to be swayed. I can't just put all the blame on my teachers, but it just so happened that these recruiters from the Art Institute of Atlanta came to my high school and were basically recruiting people to, you know, basically get enrolled. Mm -hmm. And in my head, when I saw their presentation, I said to myself, what the heck? I'll enroll at the Art Institute. Gotcha. So I went through the enrollment process and And you made I ended uh... up starting you majored in advertising. Yes, I did. And you know, it's a, it's it's you know, it 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 is of course an art. It is a course in art program and you have done work in you have done work you have done work in that area, but ultimately it was um it didn't really it didn't really fit you. Did it? Did... I would say as far as the aspects of, well, with advertising, there are different paths you can take career-wise. Mm-hmm. And most of those paths didn't fit me. I thought that social media marketing would be my calling as far as the advertising field was concerned. And I've done an internship and I've done volunteer work with social media marketing, but it wasn't really anything that turned into an actual job or a career for myself. So okay. I guess it really wasn't meant to be, or maybe in some way, I don't know if I can say I chose the wrong path. Because at the end of the day, I had a choice to make what I wanted to do. And I chose the Art Institute and I chose advertising as my major. So I guess I shouldn't have any regrets. I would say it was just a learning experience. But I did graduate from the Art Institute in 2013 with my bachelor's degree. Right. And I'm thankful because education is the one thing that no one can take away from you. Gotcha. I agree. I agree. Um, And of course, you just recently uh, graduated with your MBA, correct? Yes, I did. I started grad school in July of 2017, so three years ago, and it was an online program Mm -hmm. with Fair University's Jack Welch Management Institute. And it was a quarter system, so I was in school year-round, 
and my degree was conferred, I believe it was on June 22nd, but I actually got the actual diploma in the mail about a week or so ago, so I'm grateful that I was able to finish, and with my MBA, I never thought I would have one, especially if I think about my my path and my upbringing came a long way, basically. Yes, I did. Yeah. And congratulations to you. Uh, Thank right. you. You're welcome. All right, we're going to go into, uh, obviously, you know, given the, you know, given the times that are going on, we are, uh, we are seeing more of an established uh, representation and presence amongst, you know, the autistic community. Particularly, you know, someone who doesn't fit the traditional stereotypes of being autistic, you know, white, heterosexual, cisgender, right? Yeah. Um, and you have you have spoken to me avidly about um, trying to be an advocate for people who are who are black, who are L- who are part of the LGBT community, and who are also autistic. Do you have um, anything specific you want to say about that? Or maybe your origins or just giving an explanation as to why you uh, you want to take that path? I would say throughout my life, I never really had anyone to look up to in regards to being autistic. And understandable. I had positive influences like my mother, my grandparents, teachers, professors that helped me and guided me, educated me, and inspired me. But I really did not have anyone to look up to as far as being neurodiverse. And being that I am black and also gay, I am pretty much the only black gay neurodiverse person that I know, but I know that there are other people out there like me. I know they exist. I cannot be the only one. And I've experienced a lot of bumps and bruises along the way in my adult life because I didn't have that guidance or proper mentors that I needed. So I said to myself, I can be a voice. I can be not only an advocate for myself being black, gay, and neurodiverse, but I can also support other people who are just like me, who have had rough patches in their lives, being black, gay, on the spectrum, and I can help them, and we can all lean on each other. So that's what inspired me to want to be an advocate. I understand exactly where you're coming from. As someone who's autistic and has ADHD and is black, there are very, very few people 
that I think I can really aspire to be or aspire to see, which is which like you, I I agree. Um, I agree towards your I agree towards your need for advocacy because you you want to you you want to establish yourself as someone that as someone that the world can see. Basically, you want to establish the fact that you exist, and I had I had struggles and tribulations, and if my story and if my story and my thoughts and my feelings can help in any way to make it easier for like the next generation coming up or maybe someone around me that's like me that feels like I don't see anybody out there representing me. Representing me as the individual, me as the person. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, in mainstream society, I don't think they have a real clear sense of how to present that representation of someone on the spectrum. And then with us being black, there's only a small handful of us, just a small handful that even get any exposure. That's right. And someone like myself who is black, gay, and on the spectrum I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. You were the first one I've ever met. And exactly, and I'm the first person I ever met. <laughs> right. I was like, you're the first one I've literally ever met. I mean, I've been doing this. I know I've been doing this for at least three years, seriously. And I've known for about seven years. And it is amazing how I could probably count on one hand how many autistics I had known prior to three years ago that were not white, that were not, that were not, you know, uh, heterosexual, that were not, um, you know, that were not cisgender. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that I, you know, I started going online, I started meeting them all because I've met, I've met so many. I mean, you know, I've met like, I've met like autistic fathers and autistic moms and I met autistic, non, you know, I met autistic non-binary people and I, you know, I've just met so many awesome people online that you know, we need, you know, we need representation out there. We need, we need people to know that we, we need people to know that we exist. And hopefully on an entertainment level, I hope we can reach that point. And now that I about it, in addition to representation, we need opportunities. We need opportunities in this world to succeed. It may be a little bit more difficult for us to reach our goals, but if we are given the opportunities and the chances to be successful, the world will be so much better. The world will be so much better for it. And I guess what I also have to remember is that in this society, and of course, we're both black, we're both on the spectrum, 
we are still very much living in a racist and discriminatory society. Absolutely. Even in 2020. Yeah. And fully aware of it. Of course, with me being in the LGBT community, the mainstream society is still very much homophobic and transphobic. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, with being neurodiverse, you have individuals, particularly in the Black community, that don't understand it. You have some that don't want to understand it, mm-hmm. that look at an autism diagnosis as strange or even a some weakness. So representation is one thing, but we need opportunity and we need the space and the chance to be our best selves. Absolutely. agree because even on a you know even on a social level even if I could just see like one even if I could just see like one black autistic person speaking out you know that would you know that that would make me feel that would make me feel a lot better about about uh, you know about what I do and um, and about what you're you're trying to do and what you're aspiring to do and thank you for thank you for your uh, thank you for your honesty I uh, I appreciate that uh, I wanted to get into right I wanted to get into real quick uh, you brought up how we still live in a you know, how we still live in a racist world. And of course, you know, me, as me and you being both Georgians, I, I wanted to speak a little bit about the funeral of John Lewis and how you in particular felt that way, felt about, uh, felt about his passing. Well, When it comes down to John Lewis, first and foremost, we weren't taught about John in school. Our parents or our grandparents had to tell us or we had to look at him on the news and we had to be taught his story of how, of course, being that he came from the Jim Crow South, the son of a sharecropper, I don't think he could have even imagined himself the type of nationwide impact he would make and how special he is to people like me and you. And, of course, we know he tried to enroll in Detroit University, and because of the color of his skin, they wouldn't admit him, so he reached out to Martin Luther King And of course, Dr. King referred to him as the boy from Troy. And that's where he got that quote from. And of course, once he and Dr. King connected, the rest was history. He ended up becoming a freedom writer. He was jailed numerous times. And 
Of course, we all know about Bloody Sunday and how he was, his skull was fractured and he could have died. But he did all of that so that people like me and you could have the right to vote. And John Lewis has always been an inspiration to me. And of course, him being a congressman who served Georgia's 5th District. I know he was from Alabama, but for me, I consider him one of Georgia's sons, one of Georgia's finest sons. And when he passed away, it broke my heart because I looked at him as someone, I knew he wasn't going to live forever. No one does live forever. Right. The pancreatic kind of shot, kind of threw me a little bit. I knew he was sick with pancreatic cancer. And I hoped that he would survive it. But when I think of John Lewis, he fought a battle with courage, tenacity, persistence, and faith. He did not waver. And for me, he was one of the prime examples of what it means to truly fight. And even though I never met him, I wanted to meet him, but I could only see him from a distance on television or on social media. I will definitely miss his presence. Uh, the nation forever altered. The world has been forever altered, in my opinion. So it's been a little emotional, but all I can do is honor him and respect him. I I I do respect him. I grew I you know in contrast from you, I grew up with I grew up knowing I grew up knowing John Lewis. Um, you know because they used to do. You know my my school even in elementary school. You know we used to do used to do current events of newspapers. And every single time John Lewis was mentioned in the newspaper, he got, you know, he got front page news. So, so I knew of him. I knew of him in the lines of like MLK and I knew of him in the lines of like Rosa Parks. You know, he was, he was culture, you know, he was culturally significant. I had huge criticisms about how he acted in like the last years of his life. I was not a big talk fan. About right, we will talk about that. But for me, I always show respect for the fact that he I liked his sit-ins. Right? I liked the fact I liked his aspect on civil disobedience. You know, the con the uh the quote he asked the the quote he went towards the aspect of good trouble. Like if you're gonna get in trouble, to me when I hear good trouble, I mean if you're gonna get in trouble, make sure you're making a difference doing it. Because you know there's sometimes sometimes rules and you know some you know he saw that rules and laws were unjust, and he and he and he took. And he took a stand and he risked his life to make sure that the injustices that he was experiencing in his time, he did not he did not see later on. So 
I will grant him reverence that he was a congress that he was a congressman. I just there were some moment there were some moments that just ultimately I ultimately dis- did disagreed with. And given the recent issues that have happened in like the last you know, six or eight years, I definitely expected him to be I guess I had an idealized version of him. Like there's the idealized version of John Lewis and then there was the actual version of John Lewis. Like like you know, and I did that with Obama too. Like I have this idealized ver- I had this idealized version of him when I voted for him in two thousand eight. And then the realistic version that I ended up with in like two thousand twelve. It's just you know, at the end of the day you can't you can't glorify or deify these people. You have to you have to acknowledge that, you know, they weren't perfect. They weren't you know, they they had some you know, they, they had some shortcomings, they had some flaws, they made some mistakes and 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 we can't ignore that going forward because I know he inspired a lot of congressmen, a lot of congresswomen. I know he's inspired a lot of political people. And, you know, going forward, you see all of the activists happening today. Is that very, is that one of them could very much be the next John Lewis, right? Could very much be an activist who ends up becoming a who ends up becoming a, a who ends up becoming a congressman on the you know a congressman in a, a congressman serving, and I just don't want to be one. I just don't want to be one of those. I just don't want to be one of those people who who saw an act, who saw an activist presently, and then looking looking forward thirty or forty years later and realizing that you know they made uh, they made some you know looking back and realizing they made some questionable choices, and I always have to ride that fine line between. He's a good man who should be revered, but we have to be honest about his flaws. We have to hold him accountable to those because otherwise we can't change and we can't grow. So, and I think that, and I think that's with anyone, right, who's in the public eye who considers himself or herself an activist or someone who is a politician, even so, an advocate, even an advocate. Like the like what I'm like what I've been called and what you're trying to be. You know, there's a good chance that one day we may become, we may become significant. There's a good chance that one day we may become famous, and there was a good chance that our values and our values and our mission can we can you know we can we can strike from the mark. We can we can miss it. And of course, we're not perfect. I'm not saying that. I'm just. I. 
when they put me in the ground, I want to say I, I want to say that for the majority of my life, I tried to do the best that I could. And if I didn't. And it's I funny hope that I hope that people hold me accountable to it. Exactly. And it's funny that you bring that up about the next generation of activists, right. advocates and politicians. And my mother and I were discussing that as we're watching John Lewis's body be transported from Cobb County on its way to the Georgia State Capitol. And my mom got a little emotional because she said, who else is left to fight? Who will take up the torches that have been left? Because this year alone, we have lost three prominent civil rights leaders. We lost Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry. Yeah. We lost Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. We've lost Congressman John Lewis. We have a couple of civil rights icons that are left, like Ambassador Andrew Young, Zernona Clayton. But my mother was telling me, Frederick, these people are older now. They've had their time and they fought. And she asked me, who is who going who, who, who does to the take up generation? the mantle here? Right. Because our, because our fight is not over. It's definitely not over. It's, it's not over. I mean, I, you know, I, I see it, you know, I see it all the time. Um, you know, when, you know, when I, because I, I, I marched out here when, you know, I marched out here when Black Lives Matter started. And I remember nobody wanted anything to do with it. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. Nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to say anything about it. They thought it was un-American. They thought it was, you know, they thought it was, uh, you know, they thought it was subversive. You know, they tried to tie it, you know, they tried to tie it to Russia for a time. And, you know, it just got really bad. And, you know, I agree about John Lewis. When he said, when he has people saying nothing changed, and he was like, not from my perspective. And I mean, from my perspective, even, you know, six or eight years later, something's changed. Something's definitely changed. You know, you've got now you've got like, you got powerful corporations uh, basically trying to put up the Black Lives Matter mantle. You got, you got cities putting, you got cities putting it on like, on like floor, you know, on their like making like a whole streets of them and putting them on like, you know, billboards and stuff like that, which is at some point we'll have to get in. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll not get into it right now, but maybe some point later, um, it it just kind of seems like they're taking, it kind of seems like they're taking that, that it's kind of seems like what they're doing with the civil rights movement. It's like, they're just taking like, the idealized moments of it, right? And glorifying those. Like, they take the title of Black Lives Matter, but they don't talk about how Black Lives Matter wanted to radically change how the police work or radically change how we were, how African Americans were, uh, were portrayed in the, in the media. And, uh, you know, it's been a hard fight to get there, but I remember the civil rights movement and I'm like, everybody, 
everybody talks about like certain moments of like Martin Luther King, but nobody talks about like, you know, how he wanted, like how he wanted to stop poverty or, or how, um, or, you know, I didn't even realize this until college that he spoke out adamantly against the Vietnam War. I didn't know that. And I grew up with him. I went to his, I, went, I grew up with him. I went to his museum. I went to, you know, you know, they made his house a national landmark and I did not know that until I was in college. So your mother is right. There is another generation that's coming from this and I'm just, there are numerous activists that I've seen right now who have the potential to be problematic now, not even later. We're talking about like right now where they'll take the fight they'll take the fight and the fact that they were there and and uh and and you know and pervert it for the and pervert it for the agenda of the corporatists or the agenda of the neoliberals and I feel like in this advanced transparent world where everybody knows everything that you're doing that is more of a fight than it was 50 or 60 years ago and I I, I am cautious yet optimistic about generation well I can definitely say this to you and I'm sure you already know this anytime you talk about fighting against racism, systemic racism, I should say, yeah. in this country. It has always been vilified, no matter how it's done, whether it was done through peaceful protesting, nonviolent methods, whether these people are, well, some people, of course, are rioting or have rioted. But it will always be vilified because Systemic racism is a part of the fabric of this nation. Yep. And there are a lot of people out there that feel that if the system is destroyed, that America could not stand. And I say, let us dismantle the system. Let us destroy systemic racism because it connects with economic injustice for black and brown people. It connects with police brutality. All of what we're seeing is a continuation of the foundation on which this country was built, on which this very country was founded. This country was built on the backs of black people. And so America's very foundation was rooted in evil and tyranny and corruption. Yep. And people have to admit that and accept that. And it's hard for them. I mean, they can accept Black Lives Matter or they can accept MLK Day or they can accept the fact that, you know, and you have Lewis... people that don't accept Black Lives Matter. Just, right. the, just the very saying that Black Lives Matter just matter, right? It's not even it's not even more significant or important or 
or awesome or just some superlative. It's just that they matter, right? That they matter, right? That they deserve an existence on this planet. They just deserve to exist on this planet to be able to reach and enact their full potential to matter enough for that to happen. So when I see them, you know, when I see them prop up, you know, MLK and John Lewis and Black Lives Matter, and, you know, you still can't sit in a room and talk about systemic racism. I mean, that shows me we still have a very long way to go. It does. And uh, that is a fight that we, that I, well, we or I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lump us together, but that is a fight that I know I have to wake up and do like almost every day. And that I'll probably, and that my dream is to one day be able to say, you know what? I don't have to fight that hard anymore. But the reality is probably that I have to fight until they, you know, until I take that dirt nap, man. I'm just, that is the reality. The reality is to be consciously aware that we live in a world of systemic racism. Why feel that? I have no choice but to fight. Right. And you have no choice for but to myself, But for my people, because you have to understand, as I've said of the interview, I'm black, I'm gay, I'm neurodiverse. I am fighting for my black brothers, brothers and sisters. I'm fighting for my LGBT brothers and sisters. I'm fighting for my neurodiverse brothers and sisters. So I'm fighting on all fronts. I do not have choice. I have to be an advocate for myself and for other people. I just have no choice. And right now what we're seeing in this world, I don't know if it's too early to say, but I think that the tides are starting to turn a bit. But what we've been seeing in the country and in the world for the first time, Black Lives Matter has become international. We had people from different parts of the globe. When George Floyd was murdered by the police, you had people from all over protesting, saying his name, saying that Black Lives Matter You had places like Syria and Iran that had people protesting and saying the name of George Floyd. And of course, so many others from the Breonna Taylors, the Ahmaud Arbery's, the Elijah McClain, just a whole slew of people. And for me, sometimes I get angry thinking about it and I get emotional. Right. Catch myself. Right. And you I have say to, to myself, do it. 
I for me, not- I have to do it in order to function. Like, like I had a friend who was upset about Elijah McClain, right? She was getting really, really angry and really, really upset. And I was just like, and I kept thinking to myself, I'm not feeling that. I'm not feeling the exact same way. And then I realized that I am feeling it. But then I realized that if I, I let myself feel it, and I wouldn't be able to function throughout the day. And I realized that I have to compartmentalize it in order to function, in order to function. And I don't think, and really, even if you're out and about in society, at work, or going to the store, it's always in the back of your mind. Right. You it may not be in the front of that mood or that day, but it always plays in the back of your mind of what has gone on mm-hmm. and what is continuing to go on. And I think this year, of course, everyone talks about how 2020, the year of perfect vision, and so much has happened this year to where it's almost like, what now? What's next? How mm. much more? Mm. But I say to myself, this is still the year of perfect vision because we've where got people, people are finally seeing clearly. Where you, yes, seeing you've got people that is. are seeing it more clearly. Yeah. You've got a vision of unity. We've got people that are united out here that were protesting, that were marching in the streets. I don't personally condone the looting and the rioting, but you had people that were marching for the greater good. You've got a vision of justice and equality. And for me, even though we've had so much turmoil and chaos this year, I feel like that vision, there's still that perfect vision that we have to keep fighting to achieve for ourselves. We have to bring the vision to fruition. And that is not only for the Black community, but for the neurodiverse community, for the LGBT community, We cannot afford to just lay down because too much progress has been made, I think. As far as a social social level, too much progress has been made to just shut it down. I don't think you can shut it down, but we have to keep the fire burning. Right. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes Sometimes I get tired. I don't want, sometimes I get tired. I don't want to do it. But then somebody gets but then I see, but then I see the injustice, and then I see I see one of us struggling, or I struggle, or like something happens, and I I accept the fight, I accept it gladly, I accept that probably no one will know. Probably no one will know I ever did any of this. I accept simply the fact that I got up and I fought. I got up and I fought. I got up and I fought today. I got up and I did this. I accept the fact that that'll be the sum total of my life, probably, that no one will ever know. No one will ever know what I did. No one will ever know that. No one will ever know that I will probably never be significant. I just need to know personally that I did everything I could. I fought as hard as I could. I fought to make a difference. I fought for the I fought for a better world, not just for myself, but for the generations behind me. 
myself, for myself and the generations behind me. That's what I. That's what I need. That's, I need that. I need, I need to know that. I need that. I need to, I need to know that. And um, so it it, it feels it makes me grateful that I see it now. It grace it makes me grateful that I see that the tide is turning. And even though you know you got the news thing that people are falling out of favor with the. Uh, with Black Lives Matter or whatever, I'm just like, so they starting to dislike us now. I'm like, well, I remember fighting when they didn't like us. I'm perfectly comfortable going back to that world. And I will say this, and I will say this, Emmanuel, and I have to say it, and I tweeted this the other day, mm-hmm. when people, and and this is why I say we have to be unified as a people. I tweeted that we, as far as our black brothers and sisters, we have to stop killing and harming each other. Not because I'm trying to spin the narrative and deflect and dismiss the systemic racism that we endure, but I'm saying it because we have to stop killing and harming each other because if we do not unify, we are going to be stomped down by the system that wants us dead anyway. The system that we are living in, in this country, in the society, wants us dead anyway. They do want us dead. They do not care they want us dead. about the black community. So when what we see happening in Chicago but we've seen it in different parts of the country. Even oh, yeah, you mean Trump's little uh, little federal forces spin out or whatever? I know it's coming here. Or it's, or our, it's already here or whatever. I, and, that's my, and that's why I say this is, to me, a setup for something bigger, bigger than we've ever imagined. That could potentially be the start of a race war. So that's why I implore the people out there in Chicago, I implore the people out here in Atlanta or anywhere else, stop the violence, stand up together, love one another, be unified, because we are at war. A system that continues to try to bring us down every day. All right, Frederick. Um, okay, we're about out of time. Uh, this is the part where I, this is the part where I ask if you wanna, uh, you wanna plug anything. Do you have like a? You said you you said you you tweet or you said you tweet and you have an Instagram. Would you like to give out your uh, your your Twitter handle and your Instagram? Yes, absolutely. My main Instagram page is fl bishop underscore 1992 feel free to follow me my twitter handle is frederick and that's f-r-e-d-r-i-c-k-l bishop b-i-s-h-o-p feel free to follow me there as well and i want to let you all know that my blog site my blog site that is the unfiltered voice the unapologetic voice for 
a black gay man with Asperger's syndrome is coming. It's been inactive so far, but I'm going to rejuvenate and revamp it. I'm going to copyright the name and I'm going to release it. So it is coming. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here, Frederick. And just in case you wanted to follow me as well, uh, I am, you can primarily find me on uh, the Writing Collective, Neuroclastic, and my Twitter handle is at the Blue Maverick under Emmanuel. And uh, thank you so much, Frederick. Thank you so much for doing this, and I am really appreciative. It was my pleasure. I truly enjoyed this conversation that we've had. Cool, man. And I, I, I hope, um, you know, I hope I can upload it and uh, put it out there, and other people can can hear what you have to say okay absolutely and thank you so much again okay all right we're all right well we're signing off and thank you thank you so much it was really you're welcome